Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well, we turn again this morning to 2 Corinthians. So we are doing the same uh, study, the same sermons, both at the Hill and Arcadia. And unfortunately, Jabu is not well today, has not been well this week. And so uh, I'm able to uh, stand in for him and uh, do pray that God would use this message this morning. And so do turn to chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 12 down to chapter 2, verse 4. So Paul writing, and he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely toward you. For we were not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Just pray together. Lord, we come again and it's not to deliver a speech, but Lord, it is to understand your mind. And Lord, very practically again this morning, we see your word to us in a context in a world where we do understand the reality of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. We understand, Lord, Satan to be masquerading as an angel of light, seeking whom he may destroy. 
And I do pray that in our own lives, our response to your word, our service in the kingdom, would be as those who resist the evil one and draw near to God, that you would draw near to us. And so may your spirit lead and guide us in the words that I speak also, Lord, that they be simple, that they reflect that which you have delivered, and that we leave later today, Lord, rejoicing in the reality of worship together to the glory of your name. Amen. So I want to begin this message this morning just to get you thinking about times, and there are times, I believe, when as hard as it is to be willing to receive rebuke and correction from a friend. Have you heard that? Somebody speaks to you about some kind of uh, defect, some kind of uh, blind spot that you may have and and you haven't been aware of and, and, and this person makes it known to you. And I think for most of us, we understand that there is value in our walk with the Lord, in the process of sanctification, to be open to hear from a trusted friend, somebody that we respect, to hear from that person the hard things about ourselves. Especially because we know the proverb, and let me quote it, it's a well-known proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Great wisdom in God's word over there. We don't simply want to hear from people that which is syrupy, sweet, superficiality. We want to hear from our friends, from our trusted friends, some of the difficult things so that we can learn, so that we can grow, so that we can be sanctified, so that we can be more and more as those conformed to the image of Christ. That being said, what do you do? in a different circumstance when harsh, unfair criticism is leveled toward you? What do you do when you know that you've acted in good conscience, when you've examined your heart and you've seen that you've acted honorably before the Lord, and yet for some reason there is this persistent misrepresentation, this malicious accusation against you, uh, making it clear that you are deviant and that you have dishonored the Lord. Well, that's the kind of issue that we find in this passage before us this morning. In his role as the, an apostle, the Paul had spoken to some tough issues, difficult issues that the church and the people at Corinth were facing and experiencing and living. And so he speaks to them. If you go right to the end of the section that we read, uh, he reminds them, he says uh, in, in verse 4, chapter 2, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. In other words, this was not an easy thing for me to do. It was hard for me to do. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He did it because he loved them. He did it because he understood the prophet that that the proverb, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sadly, having done that, confronting some of these sinful issues in the people, some of the people in the church of Corinth, 
there was a response from a group of critics, those who did not want to receive this kind of correction. And they rejected him as an apostle. They found the opportunity, just to give you some of the context, uh, to attack Paul when he was forced to change his plan. And it's such a trivial issue. I can't actually believe that, that, that such a small issue can create such a, a big problem in, in, in the life of the church. He was forced to change his plans. He had said that and indicated that he would visit them, that he would spend winter there. He had started the church sometime before and he was indicating a visit to them. He was coming to them because they had collected some money for the poor Jews in Jerusalem and he was going to take that money back back to them in Judea, and they would send him on their way uh, to represent them in the giving of these gifts. Well, he didn't go. He changed his plans. Much to his regret, much to his embarrassment, uh, he had to change his plans. And, and so this group of critics, this group of rebellious people used this as an opportunity to discredit the apostle Paul accusing him of being inconsistent and fickle, saying one thing on the one hand, they said, and doing something on the other hand. Now, here's the problem. Their accusation, in effect, resulted in an insinuation, an accusation, that if he cannot be trusted to keep an appointment, how on earth can you trust him in terms of his authority as an apostle. So therefore you can ignore his teaching. You can ignore that which he's written, that which he will write, that which he says. And so the apostle responds to these critics, these allegations. We see he does so. We've already seen this last time. Uh, someone not ashamed of going through some difficulty, not ashamed of admitting weakness and vulnerability. But in this passage, we're going to see that he also responds as someone who acts with integrity. There's a great word that we ought to absorb into the life of the Christian church. We ought to be people under God, for God, in the will of God, to act with integrity. And, and, and so as he unfolds this passage, I've divided the message, my message, into two parts and, 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 and make it practical. In the event of you being unfairly criticized... Harshly, unkindly, maliciously. You can act, you can respond according to worldly wisdom. That's an option. We read that in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience is that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. Not by worldly wisdom. You and I also have that option before us. We are a relational community in the local church. We ought to be. Uh, often promote the reality of one another ministry. There are going to be times when we are criticized and correctly and rightly so. And there will be other times when we are criticized unfairly. How then do we respond? And so we can respond in, in, in a worldly and fleshly way. And I want to define that as being a way that eliminates God outside of the picture. 
God is not kept in our minds. The ways of God are neglected. The word of God is ignored. Simply removing God, removing his ways from the picture completely. Now, I want to confess this morning that there have been times in my own life, even as a pastor, where I have reacted, I'm ashamed to say, in a fleshly manner. Now, what about you? whether you've always got it right. I haven't always got it right. And so I'm hearing the word here this morning, and I'm thinking to myself, yes, this is an area that I ought to grow in, I ought to be aware of. I think every believer ought to be aware of it, ought to be thinking, how can I better respond? How can I respond not doing so in a fleshly or sinful or worldly manner? You see, sometimes, or whether in a weak moment of anger, sometimes this can be between a husband and a wife, or whether this is just the normal pattern in the way that you respond to criticism, we can't avoid that it's sin. David Wells, he gives us a definition that I thought was helpful. Worldliness is what makes sin normal and righteousness seem odd. In other words, there's a justification of sinful action and a forgetting of righteousness. So when we respond with worldly wisdom, we are inclined to be defensive. We want to protect our reputation and our egos. And so uppermost in our minds are the questions, what is best for me? How can I benefit in the way that I respond? And so the different, two different ways that I thought of is that we can retaliate. I think it's commonly known and commonly said that the best form of defense is attack. You attack me and I'm going to attack you. You say something nasty about me and I'm going to say something worse about you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. That's worldly, that's fleshly. It's not the way that uh, pleases God. It's not the way uh, that we ought to respond in terms of integrity. I've discovered and uh, seen in my own life and seen this in others also, that another frequent fleshly or worldly response, earthly response to unfair criticism is indulging in self-pity. I don't know if you know this, but Mondays are not always good days in the life of a pastor. We often feel sorry for ourselves on Monday. Any other pastors here this morning, whether they uh, experience that? Especially when there's been unfair, unkind criticism. There's a sense of, well, I'm going to sulk. I'm I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm going to withdraw. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to engage with anybody. Leave me alone. And not only pastors, I think we all respond like that. There's a tendency for us to withdraw from people. But you know what that does? It immobilizes. It renders us ineffective in the ministry that God has called us to do. Well, that's the one option. It's the option not recommended. You can, on the other hand, act according to God's grace. Have a look at verse 12 again. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but 
by the grace of God, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now I want us to pause in the sermon now because grace is one of the most utilized cliches in the Christian church. Everybody believes they understand the meaning of grace. I think most of us can rattle off uh, the definition, God's riches at Christ's expense. And our thinking of grace is limited to that which God does. It's limited to thinking that this is an inclination in God. This is uh, something in the nature of God. It's the disposition of God. And all of that is true. But there's more. There's more when we come to a passage like this. Especially when we consider the writings of the Apostle Paul, and I I looked at some of the statistics, and I'm not going to quote them, I didn't jot down the numbers, but if if you just do a search on the word grace, you will find multiple, not three, not one dozen, dozens of the use of the word grace, not always used in the same way. And so we need to see in this passage that grace is something more. Grace over here is also the influence of God on you to change you and to change me. It's not just something there. We don't only sing that song, Amazing Grace, because we are at a funeral and we want to now be sure that this person or think that this person has got a place in heaven. Grace ought to touch the very existence of our lives day by day. That is, if you are a recipient of God's grace in conversion. Thought of grace in that way? An influence from God that works in us to change our capacities in the way that we act in the varying circumstances of life. Put it in another way, the word grace in Paul's use not only refers to God's action or character or his trait or disposition or inclination to treat people, but the word grace also refers to the action or the power or the influence which produces practical outcomes in the believer's life. Like doing good instead of evil. Like, and we'll get to this later in the book of Second Corinthians, like enduring a thorn in the flesh. Remember the Apostle Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. Or, relating today's message, or responding to harsh criticism to unkind people, acting according to grace. Well, so having received freely what he did not receive from God, Paul, he's a recipient of grace, he now reacts with integrity and he does not respond with worldly wisdom but by the grace of God. And I've now picked out from this passage, I think there are five uh, points I want to make very briefly on each of them on how this grace is manifest. The evidence of this grace showing integrity in his response to these uh, enemies that he had uh, that well they had emerged in the church at Corinth. Number one I think I've already said much of this but surely grace produces godliness. How can we call ourselves believers new creatures in Christ and continue to act like an unbeliever? 
Surely that doesn't make sense. When God is at the center of our lives, as he was with Paul, surely then that which God has revealed becomes important to us. It becomes the guiding principle, giving what Paul describes as simplicity and godly sincerity, even to those who criticize us unfairly. You see, these qualities, simplicity and godliness, sanctification would be another word we could use there. It's the process of being made more and more holy comes from God. And so this is not something in Paul in and of himself. He says, I'm a recipient of grace. And so therefore, I cannot take credit for that which God is doing in me and through me. It's not my doing. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not from my flesh. God's work in me enables me to do and to act contrary to the sinful nature. And so he's able to act with integrity. My conscience at this point is clear. I have maintained integrity in my dealings with you. I value the reputation of simplicity and godliness. Why? Because they're important to God. We want to please God. Singing this morning, Jesus at the center. Well, what does that mean? It means that, that he's important to us. What we do should please him, should honor him. But sadly, without grace, let me give you the opposite picture. Without grace, responses of the sinful nature will dominate. And what will we see? Malice. I want to hurt you. Bitterness. Becoming all bitter and twisted. Miserable. Rage. Pulling out a gun or putting up your fist and actually wanting to beat the other person in their face. Unforgiveness, harshness, grace produces godliness. Number two, grace produces transparency. I said earlier on when I quoted the proverb, faithful of the wounds of a friend, kisses of an enemy are profuse, that syrupy sweet superficiality is not what we as Christians ought to do in the way we respond. We are not politicians playing the political game, just winning a particular round in a particular relational context. No, look, look at what Paul says in verse 13. We're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge. Do, do, do you get the point? There's no double meaning in what I've said. Just take my word at face value because that's all it is. There's no hidden agenda. There's no need to read between the lines. Paul is, is showing us here that a person of grace is the sort of person that means what he or she says and says what he or she means. So grace overcomes the temptation to cover up or to be uh, involved in double talk. You know, being a little bit pliable in this company, we say a certain thing, but in another company, we say something different and opposite just because we are people pleasers. No, we are God pleasers. No half truths, no manipulation, no exaggeration. Being a recipient of grace ought to enable us to be transparent and honest in our dealings with people. Number three, 
This one is, I believe, helpful. Grace exposes your humanity. Never forget that you're a people. <laughs> you're a person. And, and we people have, have finite abilities. We have limitations. We, we, we still struggle with, with the remaining marks of sin, even us believers. And so, so Paul made some decisions. And so let me read what he, he writes in verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. In other words, a, a, a second visit. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, come back to you from Macedonia, and you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? In other words, was I making this decision actually tongue-in-cheek, saying uh, yes, but actually meaning no, and, and I'm just going to tell you later? No, no. He says, I planned this thing to the best of my ability, but then I had to change my mind. Is that unspiritual? Does that make him fickle? Does that make him a worldly man who vacillates between, between saying yes and no? No. It exposes his humanity. He doesn't know what tomorrow, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You, I have a diary that, I, that I'm constantly uh, editing and correcting because as the weeks unfold, I don't know what's going to happen. I plan a diary and, and, and just to give an example, somebody dies in the church. That gets priority and other appointments have to be canceled. That's, that's reality. So we don't know. We, we are limited. We're finite. We, we, with best intentions at a given point in time, he communicated a plan to visit, but then he had to change the plan. Circumstances changed. So it's not double talk. It's not saying yes and no, tongue in cheek. It's a case of him being a human being, finite in his ability limitations that are ever with him, not knowing the days ahead. But now move on to the next point. Grace confirms the gospel is reliable. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, now get the picture here. On the one hand, when it comes to his circumstances, he does the best he can, but he doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. But when it comes to be an ambassador of Christ, when it comes to be an apostle, he has an unchanging message. The same yesterday, the same today, and the same tomorrow. The point is that which God does is always trustworthy. God is faithful. Let's have a look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, he has the message, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no. You know, this week we're going to tell you Jesus died for your sin. Next week we're going to tell you something different. Nonsense. Jesus died for your sin, we tell you this week. Jesus died for your sin, we'll tell you next week. And we'll tell you that until the very end of our lives. That's just one example. The message remains the same. Uh, it's not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. And then he gives an example. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory for his glory. Every promise that God makes stands. I've been teaching the book of Genesis for a couple of weeks now on a Wednesday evening. And um, I'm doing it because I'm reminding myself and I'm trying to remind others about some fundamental truths that God gives us in understanding the world. 
And one of the truths that I just remind you of this morning is Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Genesis 3 verse 15, uh, God speaks there about the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman bruising the head of the seed of the serpent. Now let me interpret that for you. That's the gospel. They're going to put Jesus on the cross, the seed of the serpent. They think they're going to be victorious or are victorious because he's, he's, he's on the cross, he's crucif- being crucified, and he dies. And they're almost beginning to start to have a party. They've bruised his heel. But then Jesus is raised from the dead. And Satan is conquered. Genesis 3 verse 15, a promise is given. And that promise is unfolded throughout all of the Old Testament. It culminates in the coming of Jesus. He he achieves redemption. And that promise continues to unfold. Evidence of that among us here today. You, many of you being recipients of the benefits and blessings that Jesus accomplished that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 3. His word stands. The gospel doesn't change. It's confidence. Therefore, with confidence, we proclaim Jesus. The solution to our spiritual difficulties and failings and, and our falling and our deadness. Forgiveness of sin. Acceptance with God. Last point. Grace is always a gift from God. Have a look at verse 21. This is a beautiful verse. I would love to have just preached this one on its own. But we have to keep moving. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I'm going to start just with a bit of a summary and then I'm going to try and give some detail. Sinful people need not only converting grace. In other words, there comes a time in an individual's life, many of you have a testimony where you can remember there was a day, there was a season when you became a Christian. Became a new creature in Christ. God made you alive in Christ. We call that converting grace. He changed you from being an unbeliever to a believer. I think most of us understand that and appreciate that. But this verse tells us something more. God also establishes us with you in Christ. There's a continuing work of Christ by grace at work amongst his people in keeping you. It's not just a one-off experience and you're done and you've got a ticket to heaven. It's an ongoing experience of grace as he establishes you, as he, as he holds you. And so we ought to be encouraged to know that he who began a good work in you at, at a, a season of conversion will continue that work and perfect that work. So grace is always a gift that you need and it's always a gift from God. It's grace all the way from conversion to heaven.
the weakest of us with this grace will stand. That's what this verse is telling us to the end. Isn't that good news? Because sometimes we don't feel like it. But thank God he holds us. But this phrase will continue. The strongest without this grace will fall. The point being, we believers live a dependent life. At conversion, after conversion, the ongoing keeping in Christ, in the church, in the body, for protection and strength from God who continues to give us what we don't deserve. There never comes a time when God gives you what you deserve, no. Now I must quote an old author. I like some of these old authors. This guy's name is Alexander McLaren. He says, now look at verse 21. The anointing of the second clause, if you're looking at your verse, is the means of the establishing of the first. All right, now pause there. God is doing something here that brings about the thing he's doing here. The anointing brings about the establishing. Now we need to think about what's the anointing. That is to say, God confers Christian steadfastness by the bestowment of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit. Then he carries on, he says, I suppose I need not remind you that from the beginning to the end of Scripture, anointing, if you read your Old Testament, is taken as the symbol of communication of a true divine influence. Remember that? Every time a king was, was, was appointed, he was anointed. King David put oil on his head, anointed. Why was he anointed? The oil poured on the head of a prophet, priest, and king was but the expression of the communication to the recipient of divine influence. It's fitted him as well as designated him for the office. He goes a little bit further. Now think about oil being poured onto the head of a king, prophet, or a priest. The flowing oil smooths the surface upon which it is spread. There's healing. There's refreshment. It supples the limbs. And, it's nutritive and, illumi- and, and it is nutritive and illuminating. Thus giving us an appropriate emblem. Now he's saying let's apply this. What does this work of the spirit represented by the anointing of the oil mean to you as a believer? It's an appropriate emblem of the secret, silent, quickening, nourishing, enlightening influences of the Spirit, which God gives to all His sons and daughters. It's a blessing to know the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it doesn't end, He carries on in the single verse. The work of God's spirit planting confidence about Jesus in Paul's heart and mind in the midst of him being a victim to harsh criticism. He then says in verse 22, he's put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now again, two sermons there. The seal is a representation of ownership. Now I'm not a farmer or I've never had to pay la bola. But you who do have to pay Lebola know that there is a stamp, a branding of a cow. Am I right? 
And, and why do they do that? This cow belongs to this family, and they've got a certain symbol, I guess. That, that's what we're told over here, is, is we believers, the Holy Spirit is part of God's stamp. You belong to me. You will always belong to me. And then he doesn't even end there. He says, the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In other words, the Spirit and the life that we experience now as a believer. In fact, let me put it this way. Think for a moment the best experience you ever had as a believer. When was that? Was it in a service? Were you worshiping? Were you listening to sermon? Were you out on the mountains? Were you devoted to God? There's a time I'm sure any one of us can think, man, that day it was fantastic. The point that this guarantee speaks of over here, that is a foretaste. Because the best that you will ever experience on this earth with God, under God, amongst the people of God, is only a taste. That which you will experience in heaven will be infinitely, indescribably, better I'm getting to the end I want to summarize something of the implications of the Holy Spirit that Christ gives us his spirit is to make us more like himself inflexible how was Jesus inflexible in the pursuit of all that is lovely and good that Christ gives us his spirit is to cure our wandering hearts and we are prone to wonder. Bind us to himself. That Christ gave us his spirit is to lift us above selfish and cowardly dependence on lesser things. That Christ gives us his spirit is to cut the bonds and ties to this world and the possessions of this world that can so easily captivate us. That Christ gives us his spirit is to unite him to himself forever. grace wonderful grace let me conclude sadly being unfairly attacked or criticized by professing believers happens and I want to add to that it hurts it hurts you or me as an individual and it hurts the body of Christ. And so we do need to consider how do we respond when such a thing takes place? How will you respond? It is true, the immediate impulsive knee-jerk reaction is to respond in worldly wisdom. It's better. It's right. It's honoring to God to respond instead as a recipient of grace. It's a test also for us. Of course it's a test. Is there any kind of evidence of being a recipient of faith? Let's respond as those in the midst of hardship. When we feel we've been battered. As those who have been given the Holy Spirit. And I'll conclude by reading that verse again. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would help us 
and not to use the word in some kind of superficial way of grace. Enable us, Lord, we pray, to really react and act as those who have been influenced by the amazing grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.